Salam everyone. I hope you guys are having a wonderful week. Your host, Mahmoud Alansari. On a personal note, I would love if you guys could leave a five-star rating on the podcast if you've been enjoying it. That really helps audio streams to push the podcast and recommend it to others. So yeah, that'd be awesome. Now back to the show. This week, we sat down with Mu'azzam Beg, a man falsely detained and kidnapped after 9-11 for suspicion of being an Al-Qaeda member and terrorist. He spent three years in some of the world's most notorious and dangerous prisons, Bagram and Guantanamo Bay. After being released, he has spent his life as an activist through his organization CAGE, fighting for Muslims globally that are falsely imprisoned or abused by their governments, and combating Islamophobic legislation. He has also published a book called Enemy Combatant. He now goes all around the world to tell his story, and this time he's sitting down with us and telling us a story in detail all over again. Stick around for the Ansari podcast. Well, brother Mazen Big, thank you so much for coming on the podcast, man. Uh, I'm excited to have you on. I'm deeply interested, man. Take take me through your life story. In your book, you start off with a dream. What was the dream that you had? And I would actually like the story. You know, the dream is is very profound because in Guantanamo, dream interpretation is a big thing. There's a lot of prisoners that were there and lots of them have dreams and lots of them believe that those dreams are one connection to, to a something that tells you future. I wasn't really keen on that at all. I felt like that's just because people are sleeping too much. But really, I had this dream in 1993, which was, you know, eight years before I go to Guantanamo. Well, it's nine years before I go to Guantanamo. And in the dream, I see myself in a prison. And I'm walking around in this prison kind of communal cell with other prisoners. And there are soldiers above us pointing guns towards us. And I'm saying to this person who's with me, I, I say, until when will we bear this humiliation? And he says, patience, brother, patience. And I say, you're always talking about patience. And at that moment, the soldiers start to fire, they start to shoot, and the prisoners all start to fall. The prisoners start to die. And I start to say, it's like to scream the Adhan, like the call to prayer. And my voice echoes across the world. And somebody shouts to me from a distance, you're going to have a child born, but you're not going to see that child. And then in the in the, uh, the dream, my hands raise in the Muslim style of prayer, and they go up. They go past the ceiling and they go into the clouds. My hands keep rising, and, and the dua or the, the supplication I, I make is, "Oh, oh Allah, remove from us this terrible state of humiliation and degradation." And I I do that, and I begin to cry. Now, in reality, I wake up crying next to my wife. And I tell my wife, which what she asked, what happened? This is the dream. And when I was in Bagram, nine years later, eight years later, held by the Americans, with guard towers above us with soldiers watching us, where I saw two prisoners beaten to death by the American soldiers, where I negotiated with the Americans to allow us to walk in circles, because prior to that, we weren't even allowed to get up just for half an hour a day. I wrote to my wife and I said, the dream came true. That one dream I've ever spoken to you about, the only dream I've ever spoken to you about, 
it came true. And I'm in it right now. Uh, that's how I begin my, my book with that dream. That, that is a profound dream. And I believe, if at least personally for me, I feel like it was a, a form of mercy from Allah to, to allow you to be patient, to allow you to, to see that there's a plan, there's a wisdom behind all of this. Yeah, for sure. To me, that was unforgettable. The moment I walked into that detention facility and saw the this, this, just the, they had something, the Americans had something called Overwatch. And Overwatch is literally they built a, a ramp where soldiers walk up and down so they can see us from an elevated position. And that was unique because I, that, that in, in Guantanamo, they didn't have that. They had guard towers. But this is what I saw in my dream. Wow. The conclusion I had is there was kind of a bell curve. At one low end, there were actually hardened terrorists. There were others that were sometimes petty criminals and drug dealers, not great people, but not criminal masterminds, not terrorists. And the, the top of the bell curve were people just a little more involved than what I just described. At the other end were people who were swept up and shouldn't have been there at all. How did you end up being one of the people that were taken? Of all people, why were you taken? Well, there's, there's two reasons. One is, one is a general and one specific to me. The general one is that after 9-11, the U.S. government, before they dropped bombs in Afghanistan, they dropped leaflets. And just to be clear, I, I was in Afghanistan when the war began. I was working on a project to build schools and weld, and we had a school going, even for girls at the time of the Taliban. And that's why I'd gone with my family to live there, to help uh, uh, con construct and, and to and continue curriculum at the school. You know, the Americans offered bounties of $5,000 each for a foreigner that people may suspect. So that was one reason. They're, literally, the Pakistan government received millions of dollars in bounty money. That's what it was, was essentially bounty money. The second that was more specific to me, which was the British intelligence services had come to my house back in 1998 uh, regarding the case of an individual who'd written to me from the Emirates saying that he'd been tortured in the presence of British agents and was forced to sign a confession that he's part of Bin Laden's organization. So when he'd written to me, he said, can you please help me with some lawyers? So I approached a lawyer here, and that lawyer became my lawyer, and still to this day is. So they came to me, MI5 came to me about the case of this guy. And this was 98, three years before that. And the same MI5 agents that came to my house, who I offered tea to, who sat in my front room, were the same ones who turned up in Kandahar, in Bagram, and in Guantanamo. So they were... They made a connection. This guy knows this person, and therefore he must be connected. And so it was false intelligence. And that's why when I came back to, to the UK, the, one of the first things I did was to take MI5, British Intelligence Service, to court. And in 2010, 2011, I won a massive case against them, a court, an out-of-court uh, settlement, me and several other prisoners. Tell me, walk me through your story of being arrested then. How did that happen? Well, first of all, I don't call it being arrested. You could be arrested, the police turn up, they give you rights. So yeah, you know who's arresting you, you know where they're taking you, know how long you'll be helpful, you know what laws you're supposed to contravene. This was not an arrest, this was a kidnap, literally state-sponsored. They turned up to my house in the middle of the night in Pakistan, which is where I'd gone to after the US had invaded Afghanistan, which is where I was living. And on the night of 31st of January 2002, the knock on the door in my house in Islamabad, which is where my family originated from, after all. In Pakistan, I opened the door. There's a bunch of people there. 
None of them in uniform, no identification. The only thing I see is guns, one of which goes right to my head, and an epic stun guns. Uh, they force their way into my house. They push me onto the forecourt of the floor. They tie my hand on my back, tie my legs together. And the last thing I see the bed the hood of my head is them walking into the room with my wife and kids are asleep. And that's it. I don't see them again for the next three years. I don't know or didn't know at the time who these people were, but it was clearly they were Pakistani intelligence. But what was even more shocking that when they took me into this vehicle, they lay me in the back seat in the cone position, took the hood over my head, and in the front of the car, there's two white Caucasian males dressed unconvincingly as Pakistanis, asking me that I can answer their questions. Guantanamo had just opened, so the, those shocking images had reached the world. So it was clear to me then that this is, this is more than just the Pakistan intelligence. And then over the next three weeks, I was held in a secret location. And they told me, including British intelligence agents who'd come, that the only way out for you is to cooperate with the Americans. I said, cooperate regarding what? What do you think I've done? What do you think I'm a party to? Do you, can you tell me at which date, at which time, at which place you can say I've committed X amount of crimes? Or is this just a fishing trick that you can use because the law now no longer applies? And um, they did tell me, they said, you have been illegally detained. So what the hell does that mean? And they said, well, your detention holding you is illegal, but we are the world's most powerful law enforcement intelligence agencies. Who cares? What's anybody going to do about it? And they were right. Because this was, because America had got attacked, they could do whatever they want. And more shockingly, any country that had been asked, like Pakistan, like Britain, to take part in, in these war crimes that the Americans felt they had to do the same. So you weren't conspiring against the American people with the Taliban or Al-Qaeda or any other extremist group? I'm, I've been born and raised in the UK. I, di I don't, didn't need a visa to go to the United States of America. The United States has multiple bases and assets and, and so forth in the UK. Now, the UK and America have a very strong relationship. If I had been a member of Al-Qaeda, certainly it would have been made more sense for someone like me, who's multilingual after all, who has an you know, older person, been in Bosnia, whatever, then I could have struck United States targets here. I could have damaged the United States from here. I could have traveled to the United States as some people attempted to, to harm, harm the United States. I didn't. I wasn't concerned with the United States at all. I've never been to America in my life, but America had come to me. I didn't commit any crimes against America, but I can rest assured that America committed a multitude of crimes against me and people like me. So that's the short answer. How did you end up in Bagrab and what kind of interrogation techniques did they use against you? So before they took me to Bagram, I was taken to a, a detention facility built by the Americans after they'd taken over Afghanistan and that was in Kandahar. And this was after I was handed over by the Pakistanis to the Americans. Again, no legal process at all, just a literal kidnap and handover. I was stripped. I was punched, kicked. Dogs salivating over me in the freezing uh, candle, humiliated, shaved my hair, my beard, and they did that to everybody else. So this was just the introduction of, of being taken into custody by Americans. 
And it was a shock for me because I'd been born and brought up in the UK and I, did, I was led to believe that the Americans were always the big guys. These are the good guys. And that perception changed dramatically over the next months and years. And after, so after the, after uh, Heart held there for, for six weeks, I saw some really terrible things happen there. And again, it was unbelievable. It was a shock to the system. And then after about six weeks of being held there, I was sent to Bagram. Now, Bagram was a, a warehouse that had been built by the Soviet Union during their occupation of Afghanistan. And the Americans had made it into a detention facility. So I was held in the Bagram detention facility for about close to a year, 11 months. And in that time, it's hard to describe, but there's no communication. There was no communication at all with family. There was no letters, no phone calls, no visits. You're, you're literally in a, in a war zone. And I was in a cell, often a communal cell with other prisoners. And um, I saw two prisoners murdered by the US military. One with his hands tied to the top of the cage and repeatedly kicked and punched until he was dead. And another one who tried to escape, he was also murdered. I was subjected to the sounds of a woman screaming in the next cell during the interrogation when CIA and FBI agents threatened me. They said, if you don't cooperate, we're going to send you to Syria or to Egypt. And they had the sounds of a woman in the next cell, which they led me to believe was my wife being tortured while they brought pictures of my wife and children in front of me and waved them and said, where do you think they are now? What do you think happened to them? Do you think they're safe at home? Um, so there's all of this. This was, this was all part of what Bagaram was. And I often say to people that after a year of this place, I had no access to natural light, no access to cooked food. We got meals twice a day. In Ramadan, when it came and went, they gave us our meals four hours after uh, Iftar and several hours after Sukhul, so you couldn't even eat the food. Floodlights are on 24-7, so you can never sleep properly. For a Muslim, you need water to make wudu when you're, for your, your, to, your to purification with water, but there was no water to wash with. It was just a, a 500 milliliter bottle to drink once a day. So you had to do something called tayyaman, which is dry ablution, which is just to rub your hands together and rub your face, so you can't do the ritual purification. I did that for one year. And there's so much more. This is just like a, a taste towards it. So by the time I went, I was sent to Guantanamo, I was actually looking forward to it. It can't be as bad as this. It can't be as bad as witnessing murder. It can't be as bad as having absolutely no rights. It can't be as bad as being subject to the sounds of a woman screaming, you let the leaders of white from the next cell. It can't be as bad as this. So uh, by the time they sent me to Guantanamo at the beginning of 2003, I was happy. For bad reasons, they didn't trust the criminal justice system. It gives too many rights to prisoners. There was a sense that the old rules had to be thrown out. We didn't want to give them those rights. Because we were so fearful of a new terrorist attack, we wanted to interrogate. And frankly, some parts of the U.S. government interrogated through torture. I mean, that's fact. Did they use any interrogation techniques against you or others that stand out to you? What, what were some of the worst things that you saw in Bagram? I think it doesn't get worse than death. It doesn't get worse than murder. I saw them murdering two prisoners. It, it doesn't get worse than that. What was your relationship to God during this? Did you believe that God has forsaken you? Were you even able to be in the state to pray, to make wudu, to, to, to do all of this? Yeah, alhamdulillah, because I, I was aware that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, God, he, he, if he loves you, he tests you. We believe that. But, and I've always known, I'd known that from before. When Allah loves a people, he tests them. When Allah loves a person, he tests them. 
in fact, take place in the sinless world. To test to see which of you are the best indeed. That doesn't mean that my faith didn't go down and that I wasn't quite making know, questioning and so forth. But it is faith, if anything, that saved me, it was faith. If there was anything that made me feel connected to this. You know, I went to, I went to a, a Jewish school, a Jewish primary school as a child. And in that school, it's the first time I, I actually properly learned about the story of Joseph. They call the story of Joseph Yosef in Hebrew. And it is a story of imprisonment, but so much more imprisonment for a crime a person doesn't commit. But if he's not imprisoned, if he doesn't go through that process of imprisonment, then he's unable to do the next thing that he does, which is to show magnanimity to his brothers who had him thrown in prison and then show the rest of the world that there's actually a different way to deal with this. So I learned about this early on and I, and I took this on. I, I internalized the story of, of Joseph of Yusuf in the Quran and it helped me immensely, especially when I read it in the Quran as a prisoner by myself in solitary confinement. There was a lot more too and different aspects of my connection with God. My prayers have never been as so, so profound as they were in Guantanamo, as they were in Bagram. I managed to learn the, I mean, memorize the largest chapters of the Quran in Bagran because of that nature of that solitary confinement and nothing else to do, of course. So people may think, oh, it was a terrible thing, but I have to thank Allah. I have to thank God. But he gave me, he gave me a, a, an experience, the likes of which that I could have never experienced as a friend, free man, and then to, to learn from it and then perhaps even teach from it. I heard you, you narrate a story of between you and a brother when you initially got kidnapped. Where he asked, what did, what did he say to you when you were both blindfolded and handcuffed? This was on the airplane. I've been handed over now from the Pakistanis to the Americans. And the Americans initially it sounds like, yeah, that, son, don't worry. Because I, I asked the American while I was, I was head, my hood was headed, are you going to abuse us? Are you going to torture us? And he said, no, son, we don't do that. And he sounded you know, very, very convincing. But he was lying. So the first thing they did was literally put me into the bowing position, my hands behind my back, my head is footed, my legs are shackled, my hands are shackled. And, he, and they pushed me in, barefooted into this aircraft. And it's a C-130 transport plane from what I've later learned. And there's dogs barking around us, there's, there's soldiers screaming at us. They're even cursing at us in Pashto and Arabic and Farsi in words that they can barely pronounce. And... They pushed me down, they forced me down on, onto the ground. My legs are in front of me and my legs are shackled. As I said, my hands behind my back and my head put it. I noticed to the left of me, there's a, there's a voice. The brother says, Salaam Alaikum, I reply. And then he asked me where I'm from and we speak in Arabic. And uh, we exchange those basic details. And then he says, brother, have you prayed the sunset or the Maghrib prayer? And I thought, subhanAllah, amazing. This guy is thinking about the Maghrib prayer. And I'm thinking about, you know, these guys are going to take us to be executed or tortured or worse. And I didn't know what to say other than, no, I haven't prayed, brother. He said, I think we should pray because it, I think, I think time for prayer has come up, though I don't know how we would have known because we've been in a blindfolded state for so long. So he, above the sounds of the roaring of the engine and the scream of the soldiers and prisoners and the dogs barking, I say, brother, you're on the left, so you lead the prayer. 
And so as he's about to leap, about to literally say, Allah, an American soldier comes along and he takes out a knife and he puts it to my neck. And he says, if you speak again, and he swears at me, I'll slit your throat. And at this moment, the brother next to me, who's Libyan, he says, Allahu Akbar. And now we're in this ritual state of prayer. So it really doesn't matter what anybody does. I'm in prayer. And I'm locked in prayer. And now I think about it, though it was frightening at the time. Had he slit my throat and I'm praying, there can be no better death. There could have been no better death. But as it happens, he took the blade away from my throat and we continued to pray. And this was a prayer in which there's, you know, there's no ritual washing, there's no wudu, there's no standing, there's no bowing, there's no prostrating. None of those things that you normally are required to do in, in a prayer. But I think this was one of the most powerful prayers I've ever been involved in because it's straight from the heart and in the face of unimaginable odds. Was he able to continue to say Allahu Akbar and Sami Allahu Liman Hamida and stuff like that? Yes, of course. He did all of that. As I said, we continued that prayer until the very last Assalamu Alaikum Rahmatullah, which he could do because you could turn your head. No, I couldn't see him because we're both hooded. But we did our prayer. Did he recite Quran out loud? Yes, he did. Yes. And the soldier didn't get mad at you guys since he said not to speak again, right? I can't imagine what they were going to do. You know, what are you going to do? The guy, we're already tied up, our hands are behind our backs, the shackle, the hoods are over our heads, and they're taking us to some torture chamber anyway. I guess that was uh, more bark than bite on the sides of the soldier and that, you know, I'm going to slit your throat. I, I, I thought, even I thought, there's no way he's going to do that. Hmm. The American flag flies again over our embassy in Kabul. Terrorists who once occupied Afghanistan now occupy cells at Guantanamo Bay. The original sin is that we created an institution outside and designed to be outside the rule of law. No more torture in our name. And shut it down and release everybody. Justice for Guantanamo detainees, now a cause celebre among human rights activists. So you were then taken to Guantanamo Bay after Bahram. Tell me about that. How did you end up in Guantanamo? What was life like in Guantanamo Bay? After a year of being in, in Kandahar and then Bagram, I was kind of looking forward to being sent there because of the abuses and, and the terrible torture and, and, as I said, murder I'd witnessed. The playing journey was, was really painful. I was tied again down in, in a, this town on a chair as opposed to on the floor. But my mouth was, I had a face mask over my mouth, blacked out goggles over my face, I could, over my eyes I couldn't see, and ear defenders, so I couldn't hear. And then my hands were chained to my, to my waist and the chain ran from my waist to my legs. So I'm sitting like this. And I think the journey lasted for about 36 hours. You can't even scratch your own nose. And I begged the soldiers for a sedative and they gave me something that knocked me out most of the journey. I woke up in a daze. And I remember, uh, you know, there's a scene out of Rambo that I, that when they're, they're washing the guy down with, with a jet. And, uh, I remember waking up to that. They're spraying me with this, with this water jet with a hose and trying to rub me down with a, a stick with a sponge at the end of it, like I'm some kind of a creature. And then I remember them taking me across this really hot gravel into this room, and inside this room is a cell. And the cell and the room are newly painted. You can smell this fresh paint. That cell measures about eight foot by six foot, and you, there's no window. 
you can't see anything outside there. The only thing you can see is the soldier or the soldiers who are guarding you, and that's it. N nothing else. And in that inside the cell, there's a there's a small tube, see-through transparent toothpaste. There's a there's a toothbrush that is about the size of your fingernail. There is a, a bar of soap about the size of half your finger, and there's there's a, a mat, a thin mat, that's on top of the the metal bunk. And then there's a metal toilet attached to a metal basin, and that's it. That's all that's in the cell. These are my kind of possessions. This is my area. This is my home for the next two years. You have a famous saying that it was three three steps forward and three steps backward. Is that the cell? Yeah. So all the cells measured this. That was the kind of the, the ability. If you want to take a walk in Guantanamo cell, that's what you do. Three steps forward, three steps, three steps back, and that's it. And if you want to take a, a walk and try to pace yourself and see how long it'll take you to do, say, a mile, you've got to kind of calculate that in your head with, with a few thousand times. I can't remember now how much it was, but that's it. That was it. In addition to that, they had something called recreation in the beginning. It changed after a year or so. But in the beginning, recreation meant 15 minutes twice a week. So half an hour in a week. And these 15 minutes, they don't just take you out like this. They'd have to call for infantry patrol, which has to come around this camp where I was held, Camp Echo, where there's only two cells. And after the infantry patrol, they bring in something called the military working dog, the MWD. So a guy comes with this dog and he's waiting outside for you to come outside the cell. But before you come outside the cell, two of the soldiers make sure you're shackled up. They, you've got to put your hands through the beam hole at the front and they shackle them up. Then you stand and turn around. They put a, a, the, the chain around your waist. They, they padlock that. And then there's a beam hole at the bottom for your ankles and they shackle your ankles. And then the soldiers, when you walk out, one holds either one of your arms. And then there's another soldier that comes with his sidearm, with his pistol taken out. And he's literally standing like this behind you, inching to behind you as you move and that's the pistol, at. The pistol at you and they take you out into this caged area which is about 15 foot by 15 foot completely caged from top to bottom you can't see anything outside there's this uh, protective screening all around so you can't really see anything outside at all other than soldiers they put you in this cage you're there for 15 minutes that entire process just to take you out for 15 minutes now, i'm a short guy and most of the american soldiers are huge and massive and I used to look at them and think, my God, you've created in yourselves a story. You frighten yourself so much that you can't see how ridiculous it is. But I, I couldn't help but feeling like, you know, that I'm one of the most dangerous men on the planet. And, and that's what they'd done to themselves. They'd frightened, hyped themselves up that much that you need all of this just to get this out, guy out of the cell. It's like something out of Silence of the Lambs, Hannibal, Hannibal Lecter or something like that. And, and I couldn't help but think, well, these guys actually live the Hollywood they watch. It's not even a joke, uh, but to us from the rest of the world, it seems absolutely bizarre. Major Michael Morrie believes the treatment of inmates at Guantanamo Bay is appalling. He's seen his client's mental state deteriorate dramatically. I think sitting in solitary confinement for over two years is abuse. I think not allowing a person to go outside and um, have access to sunlight for over eight months is abuse. That is mistreatment, clearly.
you were in solitary confinement, I believe, for two years in that cell? Yeah, I was in that camp. It's called Camp Echo. I was there for about two years. And I, when I say solitary confinement, I mean, I have no access to any other prisoner. Eid came and went. Ramadan came and went. Prayers and all of that stuff that we do communally as Muslims, none of that was going on. I was trying to do it myself. There is no timetable. There's no clock. There's no watch. There's no calendar. All of the most basic things a human being requires to continue, you know, just to live. Human beings writing letters. Uh, I did write letters sporadically through the Red Cross, but those letters have to go through screening. By the time they get to my family, sometimes they completely stop that letter from going, or they black out or redact, as they call it, so much that you can read nothing. And the opposite is true too. My seven-year-old daughter wrote me a letter once, and I could only read two sentences. The first sentence is, Assalamu alaikum, Baba. Everything else that this seven-year-old has written in her seven-year-old style childish writing has been blacked out. And somebody's gone out and blacked out each word. And then at the end, I love you, Baba. That's it. So that kind of thing happened to me and the hundreds of prisoners regularly. And you couldn't understand why. What's going behind the soldier's mind that's doing that? What kind of a person feels that it's okay to do this to a person? Remember, you're holding people without child or trial. They've never been to child, to court. They've never been charged. They've been tortured. And in addition to this, now you're doing this, this to them. So it taught me something about the system. This isn't, wasn't necessarily each individual American soldier. This was a system. And this system just simply does not care about individuals and their rights. What was going on through your mind and heart during these times? How, how can someone survive through something like this? My faith was extremely important. Reading the Quran regularly, trying to contemplate on this verse series, trying to understand things in ways that I couldn't. Well, there's a, there's a, there's this, for example, there's a verse in Surah Al-Talaq, which is about divorce. But it says, Whoever fears Allah, he will make a way out for them and provide for them from where they never imagined. Now, this, is, this verse is about a woman who's in a state of divorce. Right? He'll make a way out for you, provide for you. But I equally understood this verse for me, that this helps. This, if I fear Allah, if I keep my, my duty to him, then he will find me a way out and he will give me provision from when I never imagined. And that's exactly what happened. That's exactly what happened. So I can, like I've said before, the U.S. military was doing all of these things, but the individual soldiers who were being made to do some of this stuff, they weren't coming out scot-free. They were paying the price. They were being made to do things that they knew was illegal, unconstitutional, and against their basic principles of what they believed, of what they thought they were doing. They thought they were, they were told they'd come to defend their country. But defending your country doesn't mean abusing other people, doesn't mean torturing them, doesn't mean you know, America's been attacked. I understand that. But did I attack America? Did I do that? And if I did, why don't you take me to court? I thought you were a country of laws. I thought you were a country of rights. And they understood that. And they understood that they're keeping us from our families. So it had a huge effect on many soldiers. And that's one of the reasons why I'm, I'm friends with a lot of American soldiers, because I didn't, I didn't take it personally against them, especially the ones who recognized them. I think a lot of their lives to this day remain destroyed. 
I was very shocked when I first went there that this was something where the American flag flew. Once you start them outside the rule of law, bringing them in the rule of law is a lot trickier than you think. Don't throw out the rule book in a fit of passion. You'll regret it. We did. As one soldier told, a soldier told me this, he said, Mozan, to keep a man down, you have to stay with him. Just think about, you know, jujitsu, MMA. You know, you want to keep the guy down. You want to keep the guy subdued. You got to stay with him. The moment you get up, he gets up too. You got to be there with him. And that's what was hurting the soldiers. And how do you know that this was the case? I'm, I'm actually, subhanAllah, I'm having on Steve Wood, one of the soldiers that, that were in Guantanamo Bay taking care of you and converted to Islam. I'm having him on in two weeks, inshallah. And he told me when I told him, inshallah, I'm having Muazzam Beg on. He said, anyone who Muazzam Beg trusts, I trust. I was like, that's crazy. That's crazy that this is how that relationship evolved into. So, so the, the relationship that evolved, you know, with several of these soldiers is, is I would say, you know, this is this beautiful hadith saying of the Prophet that the believer is a mirror of his brother. And if there was anywhere that we had people mirroring us, it was Guantanamo. I mean, literally, this soldier is sitting on the other side of the cage and he's watching me 24 hours a day. He's mirroring me. He's He's intaking what I'm telling him, and I'm intaking what he's telling me. And we're together, and there's nobody else watching. So it's, it's, it's amazing how friendships can develop in such a place where they see you at your best, where they could see you in the middle of your, of your qiyam and layl, of your praying in the middle of the night, asking Allah, raising your hands, crying. They're watching you doing that. And at the same time, they're seeing you at your worst when you break down, when you're in tears when you're lost, when you had nothing to turn towards, when you're so isolated, when you feel like that there's nothing, or at least no human being that can come to your assistance. You are entirely at their mercy. And so they see you at both your best and your worst times. And it has an effect. There are those who became Muslims in Guantanamo. There are those who became Muslims after Guantanamo. There are those who became Muslims, you know, long after, and there are those who didn't accept Islam at all, yet they remain our friends. And that's the beauty of, of a lot of the American soldiers. That's one of the reasons why I say that I didn't go crazy. And it's one, another reason why I don't hate. I, I could have come out of Guantanamo absolutely hating everything about America. And I think, you know, somebody would argue that you may be justified in doing so. But they're the reasons why I don't. Those soldiers, East Coast, West Coast, Black, White, Hispanic, you know, Republican, Democrat, doesn't matter. They're the reason. And, and uh, I think America needs to hear more from them. They need to hear more from the Steve Woods of this world, and Terry Holbrooks and Christopher Aaron. These are all former soldiers who visited me in my home now since my release. He's not a threat to anyone. That's a very bold statement yeah. by you to say he's not a threat to anyone. Mm -hmm. Do you really believe Absolutely. that? Absolutely. Absolutely. You'd be happy to have David Hicks I would live be next door I, I to would. you? I would. And I'd let David Hicks play with my two kids. And everyone's like, oh, he's a nut. How could he even say that? Because I've spent the past three years with him. He's not a threat. What kind of relationship did you build with the soldier that was standing outside of your, your prison cell? I believe he helped you not lose your mind a couple times. I think several soldiers did, yeah, for sure. For sure. Absolutely, for sure. Because some of these soldiers, after they get to know you and they get to know what, about you, and they've done Google searches on me too. They've looked around and they've tried to find out for themselves. 
is he really a bad guy or is he, you know, not what they, they, they suggest he is. So they do their own research and they come to their own conclusions. And so a lot of these soldiers, they, they try to be very humane towards me and towards other prisoners. Others weren't. There were, there were lots of soldiers who were not. There were lots of soldiers who were involved in the abuses, for sure. But I'm talking about the ones who were, who were good and decent. Uh, I will never forget that. In fact, there's a Quranic verse which, which alludes to how you deal with people. It says, Oh, you who believe, stand up as just witnesses for Allah and do not allow your animosity of a people to cause you to them to do them an injustice. Be just, that is closer to God consciousness. So I, I, I only need to be just towards those, those soldiers and, and not to exaggerate one way or the other. Uh, and as I say again uh, repeatedly, that those soldiers, and it's not just my view, it's the view of many of the former Pontano prisoners, is that many of those soldiers helped to keep our sanity as well as helped to keep our humanity. So you're saying a lot of them realized that you guys were falsely imprisoned, that you, that you guys were not guilty and not criminals and not dangerous? Yeah, of course. And, and why? Because it's, it, it, I don't know how, how, how do you explain it? It's so simple. You've not been captured in the battlefield, therefore you're not a prisoner of war. You've not been arrested for a crime, therefore you're not a criminal. You've not been tried in a court of law. Therefore, you're not convicted. You've not even been charged by law enforcement of committing a crime or suspected of committing a crime for which there is evidence. So which category do you fit in? Those guys who'd studied law and studied the law understood that this is illegal to hold somebody in this way. But those people who were saying, no, America's been attacked and America can do whatever it wants in this world, we are justified. And it was just that. We can do what we want because we've been attacked. And, and unfortunately, if you were to apply that mindset to everyone else, then the world would be a jungle of lawlessness. You know? and, and I think that we need to understand that because there's so many countries that have been attacked in different ways of the other, including the United States of America and attacking sovereign nations. If they were to do that around to American citizens around the world, what would America do? So it can't be one rule for us and another rule for everybody else. And that's what most decent soldiers who understood that recognize, that this is making us look really bad. When we travel the rest of the world, we have to tell people we're Canadians, not Americans. Because when, when you say you're American, they think, oh, you're the guys who torture people without charge or trial. And, and they understood that. Did you ever feel like, did you reach the brink of going mad? At any point, what were you thinking when it came to your family, your life? Is life over? Will I ever see my family again? There were two points. I, don't, I wouldn't call it madness, but I'd say it's certainly like anxiety or panic attacks. There were two times when that happened. The first time was really weird because I was pacing up and down in my cell. And, and there was one word that kept on coming back and forth in my head. And it was animal. You know, like when, when you, sometimes if you go to the zoo and you see an animal pacing like a wild cat, and it's just gone back and forth and back and forth and back and forth, and it, it's just stuck. That's not, a nat that's not natural behavior for a wild cat, for a, for a, lion, or a lion or a tiger. That's the behavior of an, of an animal that's being incarcerated, that's being in a zoo and in a cage. So I was doing that back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, until my eye just blew up. I started to scream, punch, kick, cry, whatever, 
which is unusual for me. I'm, I'm generally, you know, quite calm in that way. And then they sent a, a psychiatrist to see me, which was the most bizarre thing ever. She sat across from me when I'm in my cell, like just, you know, recovering from this panic attack. And she says, 558, which was my number. Have you ever considered removing your trousers, threading them with your bed sheet, tying a noose around your neck, and then tying the other end into the cage in the corner and then jumping off? Have you ever considered doing that? I thought, wow, is this a psychiatrist or is this psychological warfare? Is she trying to get me to kill myself? I said, no, I've never considered such a thing in my life. I never didn't even cross my mind until you put it there. And, you know, really bizarre things in 2005, just after I got released from Guantanamo, three guys turned up dead in their cell in, in, in Guantanamo. They were the first three to die. All of them with asphyxiation as a result of hanging themselves. By this exact method she mentioned. I, I, I can't even begin to think what kind of thought experimentation is taking there. See, what was going on here is that there's no, there's no, nobody watching you. You're answerable to no one. So you can do whatever you like. Any kind of thought experiments, physical experiments, medical experiments, you can do whatever you like. And I, and I think some of, the, some of that must have been going on. What, what was your family doing at that time? So remember I said that I, the last thing I saw before they, 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 they hooded me was them walking to the room where my wife and kids were. Alhamdulillah, praise be to Allah, they weren't harmed, though for a while they made me believe that they were. My family had made their way back to the UK eventually. My, I had a wife and three children and she was expecting my fourth. So my fourth child, I didn't see until he was three years old. It's the first time I ever saw him was, was, was when he was three. Um, but she was okay. She was good. My wife was Palestinian. And she was, she'd lived in the UK most of her life. She had, had family here and the community. They did look after her. She struggled, of course, like anybody would. My kids struggled. My, my older kids had to somehow tell other kids that, my, that their father's in jail. And I thought to myself, like, how do these kids who are, you know, in primary school, how do they explain to other kids, my dad is in jail? Because jail's a bad place. That's where bad people go. How do they explain that my father's in a place where he's jailed by people who are abusing him? He's jailed by people. He hasn't harmed them, but they are harming him. They couldn't explain that. Adults couldn't explain it. So they did go through a difficult time. But nonetheless, I think it, 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 it did. It, it had an effect for sure. It had an effect. And it has to this day. But it, my kids now, as a result of it, they're all grown up. They're probably, you know, my oldest is 20, 26, 27. It's little wonder that they've studied things like politics, international relations, history, filmmaking, psychology. Those are the subjects that my kids have studied at, at university. Those are the subjects that they've graduated in. And they are all connected to some aspect of their father's experience and their own experience, I think. And they're fully aware. I think, you know, you ask the question, are, they, are you radicalized? They're radicalized, but they're radicalized in a way to try to understand what's happened, what's happening in this world. And they're experiencing different aspects of Islamophobia that didn't exist when I was a kid. When I was young, there was racism, but nobody was talking about Muslims being the bad guys. If anything, where I live, the Irish were, were the terrorists. They were the extremists because they were involved. The Irish were involved in a, a freedom struggle, which included them using violence, which many Americans 
red-blooded, right-wing Republic Americans actually supported. But they were the kind of terrorist community, as it were, here in the UK. But now, since 9-11, it's Muslims who've been uh, targeted as, as, you know, extremists, radical terrorists. And they have to deal with that. And part of the reason why they've studied subjects they have is because that's the world they're in Northwest and the world they seek. Did your children at any point struggle to even mediate with themselves, whether you're really the bad guy or the good guy? I, I don't think they, for one moment, they ever thought their father's a bad guy. Ever. Did your father and mother, I, I believe your father was struggling on the outside for your freedom and for no, your reputation. Uh, no, that mercy on him. He was amazing. He, he fought a, a very strong, high-profile, concerted campaign for my release. And he had a very, very strong position. He, he said this really clearly. He said, you know, if my son's committed a crime, take him to court. One of the things you've taught us since ever known of the British or the Americans is that you are countries of law, the rule of law, innocent until proven guilty, all of that stuff. You've been telling us that. You've been telling countries that don't have those um, principles that we're more advanced than you because of that. Well, now let's put that to the test. So if my son's committed a crime, charge him, prosecute him, and, and uh, imprison him. But if he hasn't, and he's not the criminal, you are. And he had a very, very powerful point because holding somebody without charge or trial, it is a crime. It doesn't matter if you do it, whether you're an individual or a state. The state does not have the right to imprison you without trial. That is the Constitution of the United States of America contained in habeas corpus, Magna Carta, and it's the same one here in the UK. I believe there's a, a UK newspaper that was trying to claim that you were involved with creating nuclear weapons? And what was your dad's response to that? Well, it wasn't nuclear weapons, but it was close. It was, it was uh, apparently, there was, there was something uh, leaked uh, to Newsweek. Which, so this, was, this actually came in, in a US publication. And it was, it was discussed here in the British Parliament. And what it claimed was that I was, this is back in 2000, whatever it was, beginning to, that I was, involved in trying to build drone aircraft and fill that drone aircraft with weaponized anthrax, biological weapons. And then my intention was to fly it from some place in Sussex or Suffolk, which is about 300 miles away from, from uh, the capital or 200 miles away, and then to fly that into the parliament building. Now, anybody who knows kind of, which I don't, physics and, and biology and mechanics and aerial mechanics would understand that this is a joke. And that's precisely how it was seen in, in the British Parliament. They laughed about it, as did my father. So when they asked me, when they asked my father at the press conference, you know, your son's been accused of building a, a drone aircraft and, and trying to fill them with anthrax. My father said, you know what, if, he, if he's done that, then I'm really proud of him. And they were kind of shocked. Oh, what? Why would you be so proud of such a terrible thing? When well, you see my son at school, he was really rubbish at, at uh, biology, physics, and chemistry. And now you're saying all of a sudden he's an expert in all three. Uh, and that uh, laughed it all off. And, and it was a joke because even the Americans when in Guantanamo Bagram never put that allegation to me. It, it was something somebody made up in Newsweek, and, and it just became a story.
That's a that's a beautiful response to it. A funny response. Like there's so much eloquence and beauty to that response. Yeah, my father was a male that mercy. He was he was amazing in that sense. He was you you couldn't just try to frighten him with with these nonsensical you know allegations. So why were you released? Where did they end up releasing you? Um, so I was released in two thousand five in January. Why did they release me? I, I don't know. I, I don't know in the sense that how long can you hold a person <laughs> without charging or trying them? You know, what are you going to hold him forever and then say sorry? They won't even say sorry because America's never said sorry to anyone. But why did they release me? I guess there must have been my father. I think had something to do with it. He was putting pressure on the British government. He told them that you need to get him and the other British citizens back. America and 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 uh, Britain are the closest of allies. And if you do this to your allies, what are you going to do to your enemies? So essentially, there was agreements that, that I be released. But you know, just remember. No charge, no trial, no allegations that you committed a crime. That's essentially the reason why I'm getting released is that you're breaking the law. You're breaking your own law. So eventually, that's exactly what happened after in 2005, uh, January. I was told by a US officer in Camp Echo that you're, gonna, you're going on, there are no charges against you, and uh, the British will be coming to connect you. And, and that's what happened. What, what went on through your mind then? Did, were you, were you excited? Were you happy? Were you scared? You know, like this, I don't know how to describe it. It's this, this sense of, you know, when you, you're, you're dealing with something, something really, really difficult, like the most difficult possible thing, and then relief comes, the news of relief. Perhaps some, you know, I'm sure people have experienced it in different ways with different things, whether it's, you know, maybe even with a kid who's uh, uh, taken an exam and they don't know what the result of that exam is and you passed. It's something akin to that, but, you know, multiplied a hundred times. A feeling of how am I going to deal with freedom? What am I going to? am I going to deal with being a father now after three years of not being one? How am I going to get back into a married life? What am I going to work as? Who's going to employ me? To people, when I walk in the streets, are they going to say Al Qaeda, Al Qaeda, Guantanamo? What fear, apprehension, all of those things. But all of that was dominated by this one thing. It's over. That one sentence. It's over. So really, the, the amazing thing, they put me on this coach, this bus, with three other British prisoners in Guantanamo. They blacked out the windows. Imagine this, like they blacked out the windows. There's four prisoners and there's 40 soldiers. So there's 10 soldiers for each prisoner. So <laughs> as to say, the Americans love to do overkill. And this was, you know, this was no different. But I, you know, by this time, I'm no, not afraid of the, of the soldiers, not afraid of the interrogators. And I, and I joke, lifelink, I say to the other person, I say, these guys, these idiots think we're going to escape on our way to freedom because they've shackled us all up. They, they put handcuffs on. So what's the point of doing that? I'm free now. They just couldn't see the, the, the comedy in that. <laughs> and it takes an hour to get from this side of, from the, from the prison camp to the airport. You've got to take a ferry to get over the other side. And by the time we get, and it's the funniest thing because the British now are waiting to, to take us, but the soldiers in charge of us have forgotten the keys for the padlocks and the shackles. They've forgotten them on the other side. So they can't go back. So they bring, and I kid you not, they bring in a pair of massive wire cutters and they snap off our shackles. They ri- literally snap off our shackles. And I thought that that was just so poetic because 
that's how then we walked into British custody. No screaming, no soldiers, no shackles, no guns, no military, just ordinary British police folk. They took us onto this airplane. And on this airplane, they give us newspapers. Now, these are the first newspapers I see in three years. And I'm on the front page, British newspapers. They're giving us chocolates, chips or crisps, as you call uh, uh, chip, uh, crisps, as chips, as you call them, drinks and stuff. And wow, I'm getting to eat some chocolate. No chocolate. I've had no chocolate for, for, for three years, except for one piece of chocolate that an American soldier smuggled in for me one day, which I'll never forget. But that's all the stuff. And it's like all of a sudden that reading's over. It's over. This is it. And eventually I arrived back in the UK. That's a story in itself. But I get to meet my wife, my kids, newest child I've never seen before. My father, he's got two phones ringing at the same time. He's fending off CNN and BBC and the Times. And so I say, sorry, I can't talk to you right now. And I can go, wow, what's happened here? There's, a, there's an entire campaign that's been going on. People have changed. People have grown. And, uh, you know, I, I, as soon as I get back, the first thing I do is sejita to sugar, which is the prostration of, of thankfulness. I fall onto the ground, I bow my head onto the ground, and I thank Allah, thank God, this is over. People are in tears around me. They're all crying, tears of joy. But to be honest with you, my tears have dried up in Guantanamo. I had cried days and days, missing my children, missing my wife, missing my father. My uncle would be looking very close to me, passed away when I was in Guantanamo. My auntie, so these are my father's brother and sister, both passed away. They was, the, the effect my family realized would have been so heavy on me that they never told me about it when I was in Vietnam, even through the letters they had. So they just waited. They said that they passed away. So it was, things have really changed in a short amount of time. And yet, for me, it was, I'll start. I'll restart. They haven't woken me. In fact, if they've done anything to me, they just made me more determined about now which direction I'm going. I know exactly where I'm going. I'm going to start a campaign and join a campaign to fight for those that are still there. I have the ability. I have the understanding. I have, I think this is, this is it. This is my moment. And, uh, I've been doing that ever since. Did you feel a sense of strangeness when you saw your, your wife and children? Did you feel maybe a, a sense of guilt that you weren't there? Had I done this to myself, had I literally shackled myself and handed myself over to the Americans and said, take me, I'm responsible. Yeah, fair enough. But I'm, gonna, I, I'm not, and I never will, put myself in a position where I somehow take the guilt of the abuser and internalize it. No. The United States did this in, in conjunction with the Pakistani government and the support of the British. They are the culprits. One day, whether it's in this life or the next, I will see them in the dock. They will be judged. They were involved in murder, in detention without trial, in invading and occupation, occupying sovereign nations. What they did to me, in fact, is minuscule compared to what they did to, did to in Iraq and Afghanistan. 9-11 was a terrible thing, but America it didn't exact justice. It exacted revenge. And revenge would be like for life that there have been the equivalent of 500 9-11s happening in the Muslim world, in Iraq and Afghanistan. So no, never will I look at myself and say, I feel guilt for having been taken to Guantanamo. In fact, I told everybody and continue to do so 
you know, those responsible for these war crimes, and they are war crimes, they've been described as such by the United Nations. Let's say that the war criminals are responsible, not anybody else. Are you angry at America? Do you, do you seek revenge against America? No, no. I'm, I'm, I'm a very, very strong believer in the statement of Omar al-Mukhtar, who said when he was fighting the uh, Italian occupation of the fascists in his country, when some of his um, soldiers caught American soldiers, uh, um, Italian soldiers, they torture us, they kill us, they murder us. Omar al-Mukhtar's response was, they are not our teachers. And so America, what I've seen of it, the torture, the abuse, the detention, that trial, the murder, the mass killing, it's America. Unfortunately, that's an American thing. The invasions of so many countries, the use of nuclear and atomic weapons, that's an American thing. America's not my teacher. Therefore, I don't seek vengeance American style. I see justice Islam style. And that justice is that those who are responsible for the torture and the abuse should be held to account. And if they're not in this life, then they will in the next life. And whatever justice we as human beings can meet out will be nothing compared to the justice that our Creator has. But still, nonetheless, I still have a duty to tell people. I've been involved in giving evidence at the International Criminal Court. I've given evidence at war crimes tribunals. I've given evidence to the British police. I've given evidence to um, government-led inquiries uh, about torture. So it isn't that just I only talk about the court of the hereafter. I try very much here. So, but I don't want to see. I don't want to see Americans go to jail for crimes they haven't committed. I don't want to see innocent Americans targeted or killed or tortured or abused. I don't want them to have to face what I faced. But there does need to be a reckoning. There needs to be some kind of a truth and reconciliation, the same as there was, was in South Africa. But, and I think if I compare America to, say, China, for example, I think you know, what China does to the Uyghurs is on an industrial scale. We had 22 Uyghurs with us in Guantanamo. And all of them say, we thank God that we were sent to Guantanamo, not to, 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 to China, where they forcibly ask you to renounce or make you renounce your faith. So in a sense, <clears throat> I know America is not that bad in comparison, but it's just unfortunate that to be the recipient of abuse, you should even have to reduce yourself to having to make comparison. If the American government, its military is involved in criminality, then it should be held to its own standards. And if it can't, then its standards fall in the rest of the world. So America did me a favor, to be honest with you. They did me a favor. The favor they did me is, is what happened in my dream. Had it not been for America and what it did, my voice wouldn't have echoed around the world and you wouldn't be wanting to to be me either. And it's beautiful that the dream came true about your child as well. Every part of the dream, I, at least personally, I could see how it came to fruition. Yeah, that's true. It's absolutely true. And that was probably one of the most stark parts of it because that, if there's anything that really hurt me, I was there for the birth of all of my children except my, my youngest. But that was foretold to me in a dream the way, in a way that I couldn't have understood before, but I understood it afterwards. You know, I feel bad asking you this, but were you radicalized? Are you radicalized? Are, are you an Islamic extremist? Mm -hmm. Well, radicalized, I'd say yes. Me being radicalized isn't something bad. I, I think Nelson Mandela was radicalized. I think some of the sex subjects were radicalized. I think people, Malcolm X and Martin Luther King were all radicalized and people called them radicals and such. Was I an Islamic extremist? No. 
I, I, I don't believe in, in extreme measures. I don't believe in targeting innocent civilians. I don't believe in murdering innocent people for political aims. I don't believe in Islamic elites, right? And I don't believe it's politically right either. And it makes no sense to your cause either. So no, I wasn't an Islamic extremist, but I, I will say that I would radicalize and I think I still am. How, how do you define being radicalized? As I said, I think some of the most prolific characters and individuals of recent times were regarded in the radicals. So Muhammad Ali, well, how did people see this one as a radical? Malcolm X, definitely seen as a radical. Martin Luther King even was seen as a radical by some people. Nelson Mandela, definitely seen as a radical in prison 27 years for being one. Leading the suffragettes here in the UK who fought for the rights for women to get votes, definitely seen as radicals. So I, I certainly believe in radical opposition. You know, wh when you speak out against evil, and if that evil is common, then it's seen as a radical revolutionary act. So I see myself as that, but I, I find I, that very distinctly make a, a, a draw a line between that and what people will call extremism. Because as I said, Malcolm X said, being extreme in the defense of justice is no vice and being moderate in fighting injustice is a sin. So it really depends on your perspective. Do you support ISIS or the Taliban? I know several people who joined ISIS and I was in Syria in 2012. ISIS came about, I think, in 2014. So there's people there that I knew who went on to join ISIS. When I was in Syria, one of the reasons I was there was I was investigating the role of the US and the British governments in sending people to the governments of uh, Bashar al-Assad in Syria. And what I wanted to do was to see to what extent these guys had been tortured with complicity of the British and the Americans. In, my pro in the process of being there, I, I met many people and many of them were involved now in the revolution and fighting and so forth. And I tried to warn them from what I knew about some of these groups that later became ISIS, but ISIS didn't exist at the time. It's, it's you start to kind of present yourself in a way that you're better than the people, or you understand Islam better than the people. It's just a question of time when you turn against them. And that's exactly what happened. So I tried to warn a lot of people. In fact, there were some people who were detained there and tortured by people who went on to become leaders of ISIS that I helped to arrest them. And that's one of the reasons why I left the So do I support ISIS? I think if you just do a basic Google search on what Mazen Beg says about ISIS, you'll see that I, I detest them. And I detest them not because of what the West says. I frankly don't give a damn what the West thinks. I detest ISIS because they executed some of my own friends, literally took them into custody. And when they refused to join ISIS, they executed them. And I'm talking about people I lived with, people whose kids I used to help raise. So I have a particular view. Somebody asks me, do I like ISIS? It's like asking me, do I like Guantanamo? If somebody says, do you support ISIS? That question is like, do you support Guantanamo? It's as, it's as heavy as that. The answer is, if you know the answer to one, but not the answer to the other. As for the Taliban, it's a different thing altogether. Totally different. Taliban is not the same as ISIS in any way. And in fact, if there's any group that's fighting uh, the Taliban right now in Afghanistan, it is ISIS. ISIS carried out the bombing that killed about 16 American troops 
uh, last week when they were evacuated, and about 150 Afghans. The Taliban was protecting those. The Taliban were protecting both the American troops and the Afghans. So the Afghans, the, the Taliban, they were some of them were in Guantanamo with me. And some of them negotiated with Donald Trump, with uh, Mike Pompeo, the withdrawal of US troops. And so they were part of the negotiating team that helped that withdrawal. Now, I don't agree with everything the Taliban does, especially in relation to human education and so forth. But yeah, it's important we make a distinction between the two. Taliban, the Americans negotiated, meaning they could negotiate with them. The ISIS, you can't. ISIS was born out of, I mean, they were brought out of the, born out of the dungeons of Abu Ghraib and uh, Camp Booker, which is another story. <laughs> but ISIS has caused more damage to the Muslim world, I think, than any, any group in recent history. What do you understand about the psychology of ISIS? Why, why is it that these people exist? And what are they trying to accomplish? So if you look at the history of ISIS, it's really interesting, right? Because, and there is a connection to the invasion of, America, of uh, Iraq and Afghanistan. So when America, just think about this, there was no Al-Qaeda, let alone ISIS. There was no Al-Qaeda in Iraq until the invasion. Why did the invasion happen? America said that, that uh, Saddam has weapons of mass destruction. They didn't. But when America went into Iraq, that's when ISIS set up as an organization, Islamic State of Iraq. But where did they set up? You you destroyed the Iraqi government. So members of the Iraqi government were in prison, along with members of Al-Qaeda, who only came after and because of the invasion. Right. So Abu Musab al-Zarqawi and his organization, they come into Iraq as part of Al-Qaeda as a result of the invasion. Their prisoners, Al-Qaeda prisoners, meet with Saddam Hussein's former leaders. And they meet where Abu Ghraib and Camp Bukha. That's where they formulate ISIS and its ideology. The ideology of savagery and butchery, along with let's do this in the name of Sunni Islam. And that's what happens. They break out from there. They call themselves Islamic State of Iraq. And then when the revolution happens in Syria, they move into Syria. They stab all the Syrian organizations and revolutions in the back. Instead of making the focus the Assad regime, they make the focus resistance. And America can't tell the difference between ISIS and the resistance, and they start to oppose everything. And so that revolution fails entirely, and ISIS now becomes the main thing. So, you know, if you look at the history of it, you, you'll see that there's this organization, forget the West, it's born out of the blood of Muslims. It's killing Muslims everywhere. And then it starts to talk at the West. And they know that the West is going to kind of respond back and bomb Syria. And that's exactly what happened. So it's hard for people to be able to tell the difference between ISIS and the other groups to say if they're armed, if they're fighting, they're all ISIS. Uh, and that's pretty much how, how it's how it ended up. Why does ISIS hate Muslims so much? ISIS believes in its vision of establishing what it calls an Islamic state. That's what it says. And if you don't agree with ISIS, because they say that the establishing of the Islamic State is the most important thing, and that's what's going to protect the Muslims all over the world. And if you oppose them, it's like Bush's war on terror. If you're not with us, you're with the terrorists. They're either with us or against us. There's no, you know, this war has no Switzerland. <laughs> this war has no middle ground. With us or against us. 
And that's how ISIS works. And that's what I said. They, they executed friends of mine who refused to join up. And said, no, I'm not, not going to join you. I'm, I don't believe what you're doing is right. You're killing other Muslims. You're, you're changing the focus. We're fighting a dictator and you're making the world fight us and hate us. So there's so many things they were doing. Well, it, the list is endless. As I said, I know the Syrian situation quite well. And that's why, you know, it, it, it saddens me when I hear somebody say, what do you, you, do you condemn ISIS? It's like asking me, do I condemn Guantanamo? Yes, of course I do. That's why I warned you it was going to be an ignorant question. <laughs> do you think 9-11 was actually done by Al-Qaeda or the Taliban? 9-11 was done by Al-Qaeda, not the Taliban. I don't think the Taliban had nothing to do with 9-11. That's established. After the post-9-11, they had put strict orders against bin Laden to make attacks against any country, let alone America, while he was uh, in their country. He, he made a mistake and he uh, disobeyed. And as a result, that attack happened. But it wasn't with the agreement of the Taliban. Uh, and I think evidence has shown that. If there was, then they would have tried to prosecute Taliban members for the role in 9-11 and the habit. So I don't believe in the conspiracy theories. I don't believe that was an inside job. I don't believe that the, you know, the, I believe that Al-Qaeda did it. And I believe Al-Qaeda did it because they believed that their cause was against America. They believed that America had been supporting Israel for the past 60 years. They believed that America had killed thousands of children in Iraq as a result of the first Gulf War and sanctions. They believed that the Americans had killed thousands of Somalis in their own homes. So that, that, that's the reason why Al-Qaeda did it and because of the reason they say they did it. I don't agree with Al-Qaeda doing that. However, to deny or not even understand the reasoning, the logic of why, why they did it will make people think that they did it for no reason. And that just does not make sense. To understand conflicts and the reasons why people do anything, you need to be able to sift through it, to look through it and say, right, this is why they did it. I understand why they did it. It doesn't make it right, but I understand that's why they said they did it. Did any inmates ever try or ever plan to escape? Was there ever like a riot? I plan to escape, at least in my head, a couple of times. You fantasize about it. But I realize that maybe if I can just escape somehow, when the doors open, run through the camp and get onto the other side, get a boat and just sail right across the Atlantic, maybe I'm going to end up in Senegal or Gambia or one of the West African countries. There's no real meaningful escape. It's, I think people have said it right. You can't escape from Guantanamo. It's, it's designed to be a place. It's, it's designed very much so that you can't escape. However, there were prisoners who did escape from Bagram, four of them. They were Al-Qaeda guys. And I've seen an interview with them after they, were, after they escaped. I think one or two were recaptured, two. One or two were killed. But in one of the interviews, one of these guys says, and one of them was a leader of Al-Qaeda. He, he said that there was a female prisoner in, in Bagram and that her number was 650 and that she was a Pakistani and that she was terribly abused and that um, uh, she had children that she'd been ripped away from and that she'd lost her mind. And I can't help but to wonder because I said that I used to hear the sound of a woman screaming in the next cell that they led me to believe as my wife. I can't help but to wonder whether that was the same prisoner, same female prisoner. So yeah, these guys 
escape from Bagram, which is I find I find fascinating, almost unbelievable for prisoners escape from Bagram. So what are you what are you working on now? What what is the work of Cage? So my particular work is, is based still on Guantanamo. There's still prisoners, still 30 prisoners held there without charge and trial. Cage as an organization has expanded beyond Guantanamo. So it focuses on uh, different aspects of legislation in the UK that are Islamophobic. It focuses on different parts of Europe, in particular in Islamophobia, where legislation has been used to target Muslims in political activity, in activity to fight for other rights, but also target the, target the expansion of the concept of terrorism. Terrorism used to be violence for a, a political reason. But now terrorism can be you refuse to give your, your, your password when you're stopped at an airport for no reason and you're not suspected of committing a crime. In the UK, you can be prosecuted as a terrorist convicted. So that's no longer about terrorism. That's just about uh, your basic rights uh, of privacy. So Cage has been fighting about all of that. But my focus is really still Guantanamo. There are people who've been held for 21 years without charge or trial. Helping boys who've been released. There's some who've been released recently over the past few weeks and months and focusing on. And as again, I, I, I cannot express enough. Just last week, the United Nations officially said for the very first time that what's happening in Guantanamo is a crime against humanity. And that's a massive statement for the United Nations to make because they've never said it before. So I think that the momentum continues and we continue to put the pressure on the United States. We try to end Guantanamo and freedom prisons. Inshallah, you will. What What's something you you wish people understood or knew about you? One of the things that I, I really enjoyed is that when American soldiers have come and visited me in my home and welcomed them and taken them around and, and showed them that you really aren't the way that you think. I'm not showing you this just because I want you to think differently. This is how we are. Hospitality is a part of it of Muslim belief. Being just is a part of Muslim belief even to your enemy, especially, or those who abused you. You need to see a different side of Muslims, not one that's passive, not one that is, you know, that sings the praises of the United States of America 24-7, but we need, to, we need to be a bit just. And I hope that one day, America can invite somebody like me, it doesn't have to be me, but somebody who's been a recipient of American abuse to come into America and to talk to its people. That's what I hope happens one day. A proper exchange of ideas, a proper truthless reconciliation, a proper understanding. I've met Americans, including American politicians, generals, and so forth, who in private have apologized. But I say to them that private apology means nothing. What you need to do is to be better. And uh, there are aspects of America, I think, that are fascinating, that are amazing. But there are some very, very dark pages, like I said, made to the American history, the transatlantic Atlantic slave trade. And Guantanamo will forever be remembered as amongst the darkest pages of the United States history. And it has to come to terms with it. It's come to terms slowly with the past two. It will have to come to terms with Guantanamo and the military abuses as time goes on. What's your message to, to, to the Americans out there? A message to the Americans is that, you know, uh, we'll speak to some of the former Guantanamo soldiers. Speak to them. The ones who knew us, the ones who met us, the ones who came and see us, came and uh, stayed with us. Listen to your own people. Listen to your own soldiers. Because they might tell you something that you may not even contemplate. 
broken lives of people. And I'm not even talking about the Guantanamo cases. Somebody gets out after 21 years, that's a success story. 21 years, no charge, no trial. Imagine that happened to Americans. Imagine there were Americans in Afghan prisons and Iraqi prisons. 21 years, no charge, no trial. What would you do? What would you do? So, you know, there's a saying in, in, uh, in Arabic as well as there in, in, uh, in English. It's a hadith. Come out to the Imtudan. As you so shall shall you do. Don't do that. Stop it. You aspire to be better. So fall on the path of being better. We will be there to hold your hand. We'll do it. Time to change. It's time to change. I think it will come soon, inshallah. I think we're getting there. Mazen Beg, thank you so much for coming on, man. It was a pleasure. Uh, I really appreciate you. It was, alhamdulillah, like I said, fate that it happened. Uh, thank you. My pleasure, brother. My prayer, inshallah. I hope that this becomes of some benefit. I hope it propelled you also into a different space, a good space. Brother Mazen, thank you, man. Inshallah, I'll talk to you soon. I'm your host, Mahmoud Al Ansari, and this is the Ansari Podcast.